0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, author Susan Orlean's fascination with animals spurred her to travel the world and observe how we use and treat them.
1: And the donkeys in Fez were the most interesting of all because many times nobody is holding them on a lead. They are walking with their load of six television sets and they have agreed in some wordless way to walk through the very hilly roads of Fez and deliver these televisions.
0: And later, the zoo conundrum and hoarding wild and exotic animals.
1: How does someone come to have 27 tigers in New Jersey? That seemed impossible. Sadly, it's not impossible.
0: From the donkeys of Morocco to the tigers of New Jersey, Susan Orlean's latest collection of essays on animals, coming up on Life Examined. Celebrated author Susan Orlean is fascinated by animals. She has two dogs, and she and her husband raised turkeys, ducks, chickens, and cattle. But Orlean's interest goes way beyond loving and caring for her own animals. She's curious about all sorts of creatures and how they interact with us, why they behave the way they do, and why some animals work for us when they don't have to. As she puts it, quote, "...animals are familiar yet mysterious." So when the Smithsonian Magazine offered her the chance to travel the world and further investigate her passion for all creatures, great and small, she jumped at the chance. The result is a wonderful collection of 16 essays, covering everything from pets to show animals, pigeons and chickens, to the more exotic, like snakes, polar bears, and tigers. From the dog parks of New York City to the donkey markets of Morocco, Orlene shares her adventures and why the face of a donkey is, quote, so utterly endearing. Susan Orlean is a staff writer for The New Yorker, and her books include The Orchid Thief, Rin Tin Tin, and others. Her latest book are these essays we'll discuss today called On Animals. Susan Orlean, welcome to Life Examined.
1: Oh, my pleasure. and happy to be with you.
0: Susan, tell us a little bit about your own love of animals. Did you grow up with them? Did you love them at a young age? What could you tell us?
1: I loved animals from the time I can remember. All of the books that I gravitated toward, um, my fantasy life, everything was about animals from the time I was very young. The first book I ever wrote was... It was called Herbert the Nearsighted Pigeon, oh. and all of the characters in the book were animals. And this was when I was supposedly about five years old. Mm. My parents were not particularly animal people, and we had a cat who was nominally our cat. <laughs> I barely remember seeing the cat. It, It existed in our our home somehow, but we didn't interact with the cat very much. I wanted a dog desperately, but my mom was afraid of dogs and afraid that they would bring a, a lot of dirt and hair and mess into the house, which of course is entirely true. So she really resisted. Finally, when I was about thirteen years old, we got a dog. It was our first dog so i I wasn't one of those people who grew up in a household full of animals um, really, it was a bit of a delayed um entry point at thirteen that seems to me very old. <laughs>
0: And what do you think fascinated you about animals as a young child? And, and did that interest, I mean, I, I take it, it, it continued as you grew older as well?
1: The answer to that, I think, is a little hard to nail down. I, I think people have hardwired into them an interest in animals. Obviously, some people don't want pets and they're not particularly moved or curious about animals and that's absolutely natural but i think the draw to animals is is really innate it's just built into our our human nature i was talking to a first grade teacher yesterday And she said to me, you know, the kids in my class, the one subject I know will get them to settle down and listen is animals. They're just instantly fascinated by them. And what is that? Is it that they seem understandable but enigmatic? So they are kind of this fascination of something that, seems familiar but you can't figure out? Is it that they're fun to look at? I mean, that's certainly a big part of it. It's just simply that a lot of the animals we like are are just beautiful or cute or interesting. Is it that there's something um, extraordinary about relating across species? I think that's a huge part of it, that This is a living thing that has its own will and its own behaviors, and yet you can kind of understand it and interact with it. I was watching a guy the other day who was holding a snake, and I have never been somebody who had a particular urge for reptiles, but the snake was curled around his arm and hugging his arm, and he looked, he was absolutely thrilled. You know, it was the snake was holding on to him because she didn't want to fall and that was her security was to hold on to his arm. I think that there's some um, electric charge that goes through us when we interact with another species.
0: And it makes me think that we get something from animals that, that maybe we don't get from other humans, um, some level of support or love. I don't know. Do you, do you think that's true?
1: I think that's entirely true. Uh, there is a simplicity and a purity of relating to an animal that is very satisfying, and it's really different from relating to people. Um, there, There's none of the... The kind of mediating facts about an animal. You you see a friend. You love your friend, but you're also a little annoyed because they were late the last time you met for lunch, and you don't like the way they're wearing their hair these days. And you've got you've got a million data points in relating to a person with an animal. That it's so you are relieved of all of that. There's a way that you have the purest of simple emotions with an animal. It's not that, uh, you know, when I'm thinking about a pet, our pets are not always doing what we want them to do, and you can get mad at them, you can get tired of managing them, but when it comes to simply exchanging affection, it's so pure. And I think that... um, we respond to that really powerfully.
0: From all the stories that you've written about animals, and and I'm sure from the research that you've done, has this body of work given you more respect for animals or the complexity of of their biology or the way they live? Um, What do you think about that?
1: Absolutely. You know, there's a way that it's very easy to project human emotions onto animals. And... Some of those are accurate. Um, the, I mean, it's probably easier to put it the other way around, which is that humans have a lot of animal emotions. <laughs>
0: um,
1: rather than the other way around, we're simply recognizing in animals those emotions that and, and urges and desires that are extremely animal. They also have their own existence. And I think that's a lot of what makes them interesting. They have their own inner life. It's certainly not as, as nuanced as a human inner life, at least as far as we can tell. One thing that I find fascinating about animals is that as far as we know, they are not preoccupied with the question of their mortality, they don't relate to past and future the way people do. So they they don't have that dimension to their thinking. Their existence, though, is ultimately unknowable to us. And, and that came home very powerfully to me while I was working on these stories, that as much as we can figure them out, we can study them zoologically, we can observe them, a- analyze their behavior. Part of the nature of the animal world is that we can never fully know it. We, we have no capacity to truly understand how they behave and what motivates them. That's a lot of what makes them so compelling. The complexity of their social structures and their behaviors came through very clearly to me. And certainly these stories are very much about the people around these animals and observing people's reaction to them as much as they were about the animals themselves. But I, I came away both awed and mystified in a fresh way, realizing that no matter how we try, we, we will never be able to really know what an animal consciousness is about.
0: Well, let's jump into the new book here a little bit. And uh, one animal I know that you wrote about a lot is the donkey, which is, <laughs> I think it's an animal that doesn't doesn't get enough airtime uh, or respect out there. So let, let's do that now. And and one of the great pieces you wrote actually takes place in Morocco. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that piece?
1: I've always loved donkeys, partly because I think they're the cutest animals,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or among the cutest animals. They... I think big ears are, we're kind of hardwired to find big yeah. ears very adorable. <laughs> and they, they are kind of snack size, you know, unlike a horse um, where there's a kind of intimidating quality of, of size donkeys are generally small enough that you can approach them without feeling fear and just appreciate the look on their face, which to me is utterly endearing. I became really interested in them too because I'm I'm very intrigued by animals that work, animals that have jobs, animals that are in service and, and the way they, they do those jobs tirelessly and seemingly um, with an attitude of, well, look, it's my job. <laughs> I mean, every donkey has that look on its face. So Smithsonian Magazine had approached me with a kind of dream offer. They said, where do you want to go in the world? We'll send you. At the time, I was really in my fullest flowering of my interest in donkeys. My husband had promised to get me a donkey as a birthday gift. So I was really thinking a lot about donkeys. And I said, well, I want to go to Morocco to the... Um, big donkey market because I knew that donkeys were used widely through Morocco. And someone had told me about this huge donkey market where people buy and sell their donkeys. And it sounded to me like the Moroccan equivalent of a an auto meet, you know, that people bring their their used donkeys and swap them for new donkeys. And I just i I thought this is where I want to go. What I then stumbled upon as I was doing a little bit of research before I went to Morocco was the discovery which I was not aware of that in the city of Fez, which is one of the bigger cities in Morocco, because it's an ancient city and it's a walled city, there are no automotive um vehicles allowed into the city, and they would never be able to um, navigate. The roads are very, very narrow, and no car could ever fit in into the Medina in Fez, which is the walled city. Right. So everything, even in this modern world, even in 2021, it's all done by donkey. And I love the idea that there was a city in which donkeys still were primary in terms of um, transportation. And they weren't merely a kind of quaint affect. They were really important, and that's how things got done. If you ordered a television set and you had it delivered to your home, it was going to be brought to your home by a donkey. If you were moving, the moving truck was a donkey, If you were building a house, the uh, building material was delivered to the site by a donkey. And this is a fantasy come true for anyone who likes donkeys. So I couldn't have been more excited. And another thing that I learned about, which added a, a really wonderful dimension to the story, was that decades ago an american traveler to morocco had uh, who was very interested in animal welfare and she was concerned about the care of the donkeys in fez that they were being worked very hard and many people had neither the means nor necessarily the knowledge to to take care of them as best possible so she established a clinic in Fez to provide free veterinary care for the donkeys of Fez. Mm-hmm. Well, this to me was just an incredible story. I never knew anything about this clinic and the whole backstory to it. So my I headed to Morocco to see this clinic in its day-to-day operations, and to go to the donkey market. This to me was one of the most pleasurable stories that I've worked on, partly because I love Morocco. It's an amazing country. But also to see donkeys in such a primary role was marvelous.
0: There's so much in what you said there that that captures my imagination. It feels kind of fantastical or mythological or pre-modern era. And I'm also interested in this idea of animals that that play a very specific role, that they're kind of working animals.
1: Yes. And, and you know, I think wild animals are fascinating. I think domestic animals are fascinating. But I I'm really moved and interested in our relationship to those other animals. They're not pets, they're not wild. And we have formed a very interesting alliance with them that, that is perhaps even more complicated than our relationship to our pets. You know, our pets are practically extensions of our family. We, we, they live in the house with us, they sleep in our beds. But a donkey is in this other space in relation to people. They are not pets, though I'm sure many of them would be very happy to live inside your house. Mm. But they, they are not, they're not domesticated in that same way. And yet we've come to some agreement with them that they will work for us and we will care for them. I find that so fascinating and and really that's where this interspecies relationship seems so magical. I mean, why do donkeys work for us? They don't have to. they and the donkeys in Fez were the most interesting of all because many times they nobody is holding them on a lead. They are walking with their load of six television sets and they have agreed in some wordless way to walk through the very hilly roads of Fez and deliver these televisions why do they do that what what wordless relationship have we come to with them that they that they have agreed to do this for us to me that that's is magical, and it, it's a relationship that has been sustained pretty much since the beginning of human civilization. Uh, in in a way that transcends our simpler understanding of what it means to have either a pet, which. I think we we understand that relationship a little more or a very wild animal where the relationship is simply, please don't eat me and I'll leave you alone. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, every once in a while we have, and I've in my book written about a few instances where people have developed actual relationships with wild animals. But generally speaking, we don't, have anything other than an approach avoidance relationship with wild animals. So that those other um creatures that we've established some connection to, it's a marvel. It really is.
0: And it's interesting because my mind here on one level also goes to dogs, um, which are domesticated. I get that. But but the aspect of how the dog had a utility for hundreds or thousands of years is really interesting. I mean, uh, you see how much people love discussing dog breeds endlessly. You know, we have this fascination of what the dog was bred to do. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm part of that problem. I have this Chesapeake Bay retriever, which is supposed to retrieve ducks out of the pond. The, the poor dog never really gets to do that, only tennis balls. But, but it's, it's something we love thinking about, um, which is how we can work in tandem or as partners with these creatures.
1: Right. Oh, I mean, what could be more moving and more awe-inspiring than seeing a seeing-eye dog working? I I mean, because we don't see dogs working that much. And when we do, first of all, we're reminded that that was a relationship with them initially. But secondly, you're aware of how uh, rich and nuanced their um, intelligence can be. And when I've seen dogs herding cattle, you know, real working dogs on a ranch, and they are working and they are really good at what they do. And often I, I am moved most by dogs that, um, that do things better than any mechanized equipment could do. Search and rescue dogs, drug sniffing dogs. The reason we use dogs to sniff for bombs and and drugs is that we don't have a machine that has the ability to discern smells as well as a dog can. Now, that's amazing. I mean, we have not improved on the dog. And, you know, most dogs in this world are companions, which is a job. (laughs) It's probably a very cushy job for many of them. And we have dogs, I have two dogs. One is a Welsh Springer Spaniel, and her job, like your dog, was to be in a, a hunting situation, something she has never done and never will. My other dog is a smooth fox terrier who was meant to flush foxes out of their dens and all he'll ever flush is a stuffed toy out of underneath the sofa um so these are dogs and they look completely different because they were bred for their jobs and their companions they and their behavior there is a difference in their behavior. I mean, my two dogs have really different personalities because they've been bred for those jobs, even though they don't do them anymore. They couldn't be more different, these two animals. And, and yet they're both dogs. And, but we've created these breeds with um, the intention of them working,
0: so I think we could probably spend this whole hour talking about dogs. Um, I'm sure it's a subject we both love. But, but I want you to talk a little bit more about how dogs uh, play a role in your new book. And one of my favorite pieces is actually right in the beginning, where you talk about dogs in New York City. Um, tell us about that a little bit.
1: When I moved to New York, I had a little sort of twinge of thinking, well, I'm moving into the most urban place place perhaps in the world, so I'm probably not going to see many animals. And I accepted that as the nature of living in New York City. Well, was I ever wrong? (laughs) Uh, I, I think the dog ownership in New York may be higher than average because people are so disconnected from nature that they may feel um, more than in any other environment an incredible urge to have nature in the form of of an animal in their homes. And I had a dog when I moved to New York, and she was at that point 13 years old. I thought, oh, she's going to be miserable. Well, I didn't appreciate the fact that New York City has dozens of dog parks and and huge parks in in general but that that dog ownership was very common and she probably had more fun and certainly played with more dogs in New York City than she ever did when I was living in a less urban area if you live in the suburbs your dog Probably lives in your yard,, yeah. and you don't interact with other dogs it It's probably would be entirely likely that your dog would never interact with another dog except when they went to the groomer or the vet, but you know they're not going to be out playing with other dogs anywhere. <laughs> suddenly, I'm living in this totally urban area. And my dog spent every day in a dog park in, you know, within Riverside Park, there are several uh, dog parks. In Central Park, there are dog play areas. So she was playing with dogs all the time. And, you know, this is an exact mirroring of what it's like for a suburban child versus an urban child. The suburban child probably has a play set and a jungle gym in his or her backyard and plays alone on her jungle gym. An urban kid has to go to the park where they're gonna interact with other kids. So it, it was really a funny sort of inside out experience to be in such an urban area and realize, well, you have to share space in an urban area.
0: Susan Orlean is a staff writer for The New Yorker, and her books include The Orchid Thief and others. Her latest book, which we're discussing today, is a collection of essays called On Animals. And stay with us for part two. We'll talk about wild and exotic animals and why no one should own a tiger. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close.
1: Introducing the KCRW donation
0: car. Designed to be recycled... We continue now with our conversation with Susan Orlean, author of On Animals, in which she explores our relationship with animals in a series of 16 essays. We just heard Orlean talk about the simplicity of emotion that happens when we connect with an animal and why so many of us bend over backwards just to make our pets happy. So why do we as a society often mistreat animals? Why in an era of amazing photojournalism do we need to take animals out of the wilds, lock them in cages and zoos? We'll pick up our conversation right where we left off with Susan Orlean. In this book, you also write about um, some of the great exotic animals out there and you've got some great stories about them. Tell us a little bit about that whole other worlds of animals.
1: A lot of these stories are about exotic animals, and I have to say in general, the stories have a lot of poignancy because any you have an exotic animal, a, an animal that's meant to be wild, having a close relationship with humankind, um, it's not necessarily a happy ending. I began, the, the earliest piece that I wrote about that relationship was about a woman in suburban New Jersey who, it was discovered, had 27 tigers as pets. Mm-hmm. Or, and I say pets with quote marks around it because tigers are not pets. Um, she had them living at her home, but tigers are not pets. The story, this predated the Tiger King by a couple of decades. And, you know, when Tiger King suddenly came out and became such a phenomenon and to some degree people found it funny. I, I found it very unfunny because the, the saga of animal hoarding, which is what this is, is a tragedy, In this case, what was tragic was there were so many dimensions to what was tragic about it. First of all, tigers should not live in suburban New Jersey. So that's just, you know, dead stop at that statement. This should not be. Secondly, tigers in general shouldn't be in captivity. And that's a whole other topic about whether zoos should exist or not. But that isn't That is not the natural state of tigers. Thirdly, 27 tigers shouldn't live in a small area. Tigers are very solitary animals, so hoarding them and keeping them in close proximity with each other is already perverting their their natural state of being. And in the case of this woman, several of her tigers killed each other because they... Tigers don't like tigers, <laughs> they really don't, and they, they aren't meant to live in groups. Third, uh, and I, maybe I'm on fourth at this point, but um, the ease of acquiring exotic animals horrified me. My first question was, how does someone come to have 27 tigers in New Jersey that, that seemed impossible? Sadly, it's not impossible. It's, in fact, in anyone who tried to adopt a dog during the pandemic and and found it very difficult, I can tell you it would have been very easy to get a tiger, easier Mm -hmm. than to adopt a dog, because dogs were in such high demand. It is a sad fact of the way the world is set up right now, that there are more tigers in captivity than in the wild, and tigers breed relatively easily, so there are an ever-growing number of tigers in captivity, and it is thoroughly illegal, but very easy to buy a tiger. And who would have thought this? I certainly did not. And the answer to the question of how does someone come to have 27 tigers got answered very quickly, which is they are very easy to buy. It it opened up this world to me of first of all the whole extremely thorny issue of animal hoarding. Um and we as a society have not addressed this well, partly because it's an intractable issue. It's a very difficult issue to grapple with because it is a dysfunction mentally. I mean, hoarding animals is is not a healthy behavior. Secondly, It's very difficult once you catch somebody hoarding animals to figure out what to do with those animals, particularly if they're an exotic, like a tiger. There aren't places to send those animals where they can have a decent life. So it's it's very difficult. And a shocking fact that I came across is that recidivism among animal hoarders is 100% that it's been found that if somebody, you you know, someone is found to have 150 cats and the city comes in and with their ordinances um, is able to take those cats away, that person, the likelihood that that person will once again acquire too many cats is pretty much a guarantee. So, we're not really addressing the problem we're We're taking away a set of animals that will then be replaced by another set of animals because the problem is a mental health issue it, it's it's not it's not a healthy behavior to hoard animals and these are people who will tell you they love animals, but often they're not providing. A good environment for them, and they can't they can't see past their obsession to the reality of how they're caring for their animals. So it was a subject that um, I got very engrossed in. There are complexities that I had never imagined. Um, why are there why is it so easy to get animals, mm. particularly exotic animals? Well, there is a little dirty secret, which is that a lot of these animals come from zoos. Zoos breed lots of baby animals because visitors love baby animals. Mm. And we all do, I love baby animals. And when I see that the zoo has a, a tiger cub, I'm gonna wanna go see it. Everybody does, it's human nature. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way we respond to baby animals. The problem is, if you're breeding new tigers every year, I mean, you do the math, the zoo can't have an ever-expanding population of tigers. They they simply don't have the room. So what happens to those tigers? I hate to tell you... But even the best zoos dispose of those surplus animals in ways that eventually, in many cases, lead to those animals being available on the gray market or the black market to individuals.
0: So this is pretty serious disturbing stuff the way the way that you've been reporting this and some of the conclusions that you've you've come to
1: um I think we need to really address this issue in a in a it, it is horrible if you love animals and you begin unwinding the backstory of How, I mean, look, we did, we have done a very good job with spaying and neutering Mm. with dogs and cats because we all, those of us who love animals, began to realize you know what, there are too many puppies and kittens, and we need to be controlling the population so that the puppies and kittens that come into the world have sufficient good homes for them to live in and that unbridled breeding among animals is going to create too many of them unfortunately that is also true but in a more tragic way in the world of exotic animals and we all know that the solution to overbreeding with dogs and cats for many years has been euthanasia. These extra animals go to shelters, and if they're not adopted in a short amount of time, they get killed. We've found it a little harder to imagine that in the case of animals like tigers, where we think, oh, but tigers are rare. Well, yeah, in the wild, tigers are rare. <laughs> and But in captivity, they're not rare. And many, Zoos breed these animals for our enjoyment, and that is understandable, but there isn't a an end game, um, which is what do you do with all those extra animals and unfortunately, I found out what what you do with them, and it's not something any anyone would feel good about. Mm. It's just not. And we need to address that. And it may require a a radical response. Um, And by the way, the fantasy that these animals can be released into the wild is a fantasy. Um, An animal, a wild animal raised in captivity is difficult to release into the wild. And moreover, there isn't habitat for them. And that's a whole other piece of this puzzle, which is part of the reason tigers are so rare is that there isn't enough wild space for them to live in. And and that's very much at the root of the issue, which is we are gobbling up wild habitat in a way that will leave almost no space for wild animals to exist.
0: And it's interesting how I, I think this kind of upends the guiding, I don't know, philosophy of zoos or places like worlds which I think was, you know, you get these incredible animals, you put them on some level of a public display, and therefore uh, people will want to protect them in natural habitats. But I think you're reporting is talking about really a, a whole other angle to this industry that, that I think gives, at least me, um, quite a bit of pause.
1: It, well, exactly. I mean, both for the individual animal living in captivity, but also the breeding and then having too many. But I also want to make another point, which is I don't know that people are pe- seeing animals in captivity makes us appreciate them the way we should. I, I know I'm a person who used to go to zoos. I took my son to the zoo. I loved looking at the animals. And then I began feeling like I'm seeing these animals as displays, I was much more awed by seeing amazing video of animals in the wild behaving the way they should. Do we really have the reverence for a wild animal when we see it in captivity? Does it really give us the lesson of feeling awed and and moved by their wildness, um, I I am not sure that that's what we feel. I mean, if you want to truly be moved by, by wildness and wild animals, I don't think you have that experience until you happen to encounter an animal in the wild. Or I think, Seeing amazing footage of animals in the wild is much more awe-inspiring and inspirational and makes me think we need to do what we can do to preserve their wildness. As opposed to seeing, I remember going to the Central Park Zoo and seeing their polar bears in the middle of the summer in New York City, hot and humid, and the polar bear had developed what a lot of zoo animals develop, which is a, a sort of OCD behavior of swimming around and around in his little pool. And it was very disturbing. You, There was no way that you couldn't recognize it as a behavior that was out of stress and boredom and unhappiness. So you see this incredible animal, which by the way, if you ever encountered in the wilderness, you'd be terrified because they're enormous and they're, they're pretty vicious. But instead he was in an enclosure which was a beautiful enclosure. You know, kudos to the Central Park Zoo for making a beautiful enclosure. But no matter what, this animal was thwarted in every one of its instincts. And many zoo animals do develop these compulsive behaviors because they're bored and they're stressed. Zoos try very hard to enrich their environment, give the animals something to do, but you can never provide wilderness. You can never give an animal the need to catch its own prey, which is what they're wired to do, you can't ever provide a perfect environment. The perfect environment is the wilderness. So, you know, we need to maybe think hard about whether this is the way we want to celebrate wildness. And whether the time for that kind of display has passed in a world in which we have extraordinary capacity to photograph and film wild animals in the wild in a way that is so inspiring and so magnificent that we would never see in captivity. What does that mean? And what is our moral choice? And I I think about it a lot. The repercussions of captivity are enormous.
0: It seems like you're speaking to this, I think, very deep psychological impulse in humans, which is to, to present our level of control or domestication over wild things around us. And, you know, I, what happens when we continue to do that, what are the ramifications that we're now seeing? I mean, in a sense, kind of taking this wildness away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that we have, since we evolved as a species, have seen the nearness to wildness has power. And wild animals were very much part of Primitive art, um, decoration, symbolism—it's all about this power and untamability. But we have evolved, you know. If a shocking fact that might put you in the right direction of thinking about the the implications of captivity is, many people don't know that we used to display people in zoos pygmies were brought from africa and displayed in zoos wow. so now we would all say oh my god that's horrifying who would ever do that but captivity is a dehumanization and a denaturing of the thing that we think we're responding to we 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 look at tigers as these powerful, wild, extraordinary beings, but in captivity, what are they? They're decorative. They're wonderful to look at. I, I'm, I am as guilty as anybody in enjoying the chance to look at a tiger. If it, if it weren't for a zoo, I'm never going to see a tiger in the wild. I I don't live anywhere that tigers live, and I would never encounter one. But should I? What does it mean? What happens when that tiger gets old? I mean, that's another issue zoos have to deal with. Their nursing homes. You know, when their animals get old and they're no longer very attractive, what do they do with them? Some of these animals live a long time. And zoos do better with young, lively animals. So what is is the solution? And maybe we're trying to solve a problem that we shouldn't have, if you know what I mean. I mean, maybe we've created a problem and we try to solve it instead of stepping back a little further and saying, well, maybe we shouldn't create the problem.
0: Well, as we begin to slowly wrap up our time together, I I, got to say, you're leaving me with a very um, wide-angled, complex view of our relationship with animals, you know? I mean whether it's the, the creatures that we love and coddle and, and treat as our, as our brother or sister or best friend or the way that we've uh, brought animals out of the wild as these showpieces or, you know, other animals that we're driving to uh, points of extinction. It's, I, there's just so many questions to me and concerns and ideas that, that have come out of this.
1: I think that our relationship to animals is... Wired inextricably to our relationship as humans. The way we, and I'm not saying you need to be an animal lover or have pets, none of that. Our relationship to the animal world, first of all, exists for everybody. There is no one on this earth that is untouched by the animal world. Our, our emotions about it are the moral issues that it raises, the emotional issues that it raises. Those are all deeply and, and inseparably connected to the questions of who we are as, as humans and what our moral and ethical and emotional standards are. the the way we treat animals is very much a a kind of indicator of our sense of our obligation to other living things and particularly to living things that ultimately are below us on the kind of great chain of life Um, where we're really the apex predator on planet Earth. So is it a stewardship that respects what these animals instinctively need? Is it empathy? Is it that we look at them as humans with fur? I mean, is that the right way to react to them? Um, And I'm just raising these as all the different ways that we interact with them. I don't think it should go unexamined. I think uh, it's part of what makes us human is to examine the way we interact with other life forms, particularly life forms that are, in many instances, dependent on us.
0: Well, Susan Orlean, thank you for this great conversation and for joining us on Life Examined. We really appreciate the time.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Well, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you soon. You're listening to KCRW.